Romans chapter 8, um, if you don't have your own copy of Scripture, you can find that on page 1300 in the Pew Bible in front of you. I suspect that Satan hates all of Scripture. There's probably no words uh, in the Bible that Satan uh, appreciates or likes, but I also suspect that the passage we look at today is probably on his top ten most hated list. I imagine that if Satan were going to pin a scripture up upon the, the wall and throw darts at it, uh, one of those scriptures would undoubtedly be Romans chapter 8, verse 1. The Bible says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That is an amazing mouthful. And we may get past verse 1 tonight. I don't know. But we're going to dive in here and begin to uh, allow the Lord to do a work in us through this amazing truth. Really, uh, Romans chapter 8 is sort of the the culmination or the high point, if you will, of this section of Scripture we've been looking at on Sunday nights for about the past five or six weeks. We've looked at chapter 6. We've looked at chapter 7. We began this process never intending to go this far. I uh, simply wanted to uh, deal for a couple weeks with this issue of assurance, which has just continued on and on and on. Uh, The Lord just really impressed upon my heart uh, that... There are too many Christians that live as though they're still under the power of sin. And so it just appears to me oftentimes that many people who are professing believers uh, are like people who drive old, dilapidated cars with new paint jobs. That on the outside they look shiny and on Sunday mornings they look good, but on the inside uh, there's... There's no change. There's been no uh, renewal. And so we've learned a lot, but mainly what we've learned is that Christianity is not about morality. And hopefully you have got that set into your heart. Christians are not 
just good moral people. It's not by accident that we wind up studying this scripture uh, after studying uh, our text this morning in Luke chapter 7 with the centurion. They will go directly together. In fact, as normally happens, even the uh, accounts in my own personal life today flow directly into this passage of Scripture. God always orchestrates those things in that way to remind us that He's in control of every single detail in, around us, and through us. So Christianity is about transformation. We've talked lots about that. It's an internal revolution that will lead to an external transformation. We've established that the old nature has been put to death through crucifixion and that the new Man, the new spirit-filled nature has been brought to life through resurrection. Remember that in Romans 6, chapter 4, Paul said, Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. And as you look at this passage of Scripture, I want you to, to, to see the finality that is here. Therefore, we were buried. Is a burial reversible? A burial is is final. It is permanent. It is irreversible. We've been baptized, or as we learned, immersed into death just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. You cannot unimmerse something once you've been buried, once you've been immersed. They are permanent. Therefore, We will walk in newness of life. He goes on two verses later to say, knowing this, that our old nature was crucified. Again, I'm just outlining the finality of this because when we get to our text tonight, there will be all the pressure in the world inside of your head to try to convince you that this is not for you, this cannot be for you, this is too good to be true, and so on and so forth. And I want you to see the language that Paul uses to convey the finality of what has happened to those who are in Christ. Verse 6, Romans 6, 6, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And really, that that word uh, that we should no longer, it, it really should be translated would no longer be or are no longer. That is a that is a definite occurred event in time that we will no longer be slaves of sin. So let's think about this for a moment. In the cross, you and I as believers, as redeemed children of God, we find our new identity. So when we look at a cross, that is where we find who we are. We find our confidence and our security and our being and our worthiness in the symbol of the cross, in the event of the cross. And so what you're going to see is these two, these two ideas or these two truths that sort of uh, come out of the cross that Paul is going to lead us through in Romans chapter 8. The first thing the cross tells us is this. Whenever you look at a cross, you need to understand something. That cross tells you and me that there was something drastically wrong with us. In other words, the cross says to Tony, 
Tony was in such horrific shape. His sin was so grotesque. It was so repulsive to God. It was so out of control. The only solution for the sin of Tony was the death of the Son of God. You see, the cross symbolizes what we're capable of in the flesh. So whenever we see the cross, as I'm going to point out to you, this is so critical. A person who doesn't understand their capacity for evil in the flesh is bound for trouble. So the cross must first and foremost say to you and say to me, we were filled with rampant wickedness. And the only solution to our problem... In other words, imagine this. Imagine that... that Someone in your family was sick. And I remember a few years ago, my sister was having a problem with her kidneys and they were trying to figure out what was going on. And there was a period of time where my mom was sort of hinting around, you know, you you might have to give up a kidney. And I just remember sort of going through that process. It's very easy to say, well, sure, you know, I mean, I would. But then when it becomes a reality, you start realizing, okay, you know, so I'm going to give up a kidney. And so there was this period of time where I wasn't sure if that was going to come to pass. And then, you know, it worked out and I didn't have to do that. But I was willing to do that, but it was it was still kind of scary. Well, that's not what our sin is like. Our sin would be like someone in your family, your child needed a complete and utter head-to-toe organ transplant. See, that's how serious the sickness was, that, that everything was failing, everything was wrong, nothing was working. I mean, it was catastrophic. And so when you walked into the doctor's office and the doctor was explaining to you what's wrong with your loved one, here's what the doctor said. Listen, there's no hope here. The only hope is for you to donate everything within you to try to save this other person. That's how serious it is. In other words, our sin could only be conquered through this drastic, unbelievably horrific event of the cross. So that ought to make you feel just terrible. The second truth of the cross, that every time you look at a cross, you also need to realize how unbelievably valuable you are to God. You see... That He would slay His beloved Son for you and me. That when you, as a believer, you know, not not necessarily us corporately, but you personally, when you look up there so many times when Donnie's leading us in worship, I just get mesmerized by the cross. I just look up there and I'm just singing to the cross. And tonight he's singing about the cross and I'm looking up there and I'm knowing what's burning in my heart. And I'm thinking, God, thank you. Because that cross proves that you love me. That even though I was so wicked and so hopelessly sick, that you love me enough to slay your son, to save me and give me newness of life. And so those are these these two opposing 
truths that Paul just kind of lays out for us in Romans 8 and they just sort of wrestle together. And, and I want you to begin to see what happens if you get a little off, if you don't, if you don't see this, if you don't get this. I, I re- remember one of my seminary professors telling us this story and it profoundly impacted my understanding of this truth. He, he told the story of uh, this Christian couple and they uh, had three children and they loved the Lord and were active in their church. And I don't remember all the circumstances of the event, but here's what happened. Somehow their children were in, the young children were in the car, you know, strapped in the baby seats or whatever. And the mom and dad were out of the car and the car rolled into a lake. And, and all of their children perished in the car. And so obviously that just got all sorts of media attention and there was all this stuff about, you know, how horrible it was. And so here's the mom and dad and they're on TV all the time and they're talking about how their faith in Jesus gets them through that and they were strong and they and so they were getting all this attention as, as being these amazing Christians who even in the face of the most horrific event that no one could even conceive of being able to, to get through, they were strong in the Lord. And, and so time passed and they were strong in the Lord and serving in church and they had more kids and sort of got their family going. And, and, and this husband, this man, was a, was a, held a, a leadership position in the church and things were great and people looked at them and said, they're these amazing people. And then years later, the man went in to see his pastor and confessed to his pastor that he was having these uncontrollable sexual desires for another woman in the church that was not his wife. And this man committed suicide. He killed himself. And I'll never forget this because... It illustrates that if you don't understand the cross, if you only get one side and not the other side, then here is a man who could withstand the most horrific things that the world could throw at him, but couldn't get through the depravity of his own heart. You understand that? You must realize that when you are watching television, when you see this report of this, this unbelievably grotesque serial killer or child molester or whatever the case may be, and it just makes our, our, our spirit shrink up and we just well up with, with empathy for the for the victims and for the horrific nature of the crime. Don't let yourself be tricked into thinking that you are not or were not a member of the very same race. Because if you are, then Satan has a trap for you. Because people who don't understand who they once were and what they once were capable of and the the gravity of the depraved nature that was crucified at the cross are in for trouble. So you can't just run around in the value of the cross. You also have to 
have to balance this out with the understanding of what once was and now no longer is in order to really be settled in what Christ is going to try to tell us tonight for sure. So let's look for a moment at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, I would like to talk to you for the entire night about the fourth word in this verse. I won't do that, but I'd like to. I'd like for us to get out a giant highlighter and a red pen and some big stick-on post-it arrows like, you know, secretaries put on things that, you know, I've misspelled and haven't done correctly that I have to fix in the office. Thank God for those big arrows. And point it all around that word now. Point everything around that word now and just settle on that for a minute and say, the Bible says that those of us that are in Christ there is therefore now. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, not next month. Tonight, this very moment, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just to begin to imagine what this means. That the Bible says you are not condemned. You will not be condemned. You will never be condemned. You cannot be condemned. It's not ever going to happen. Period. End of statement. Done. Now, when you begin to try to embrace this, here's here's what the enemy tries to do in our heads. Here's what the enemy tries tries to counter... This scripture, as he is throwing darts at it on the wall, he, he begins to remind us that, number one, you still sin, and I still sin. And so that's kind of a problem. Because I would love to just walk in the freedom of now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but I've had a bad week. Maybe you've had a bad week. Maybe some of you had a bad day. And so because you still sin, that voice of condemnation is coming in saying, well, yeah, you know, okay, but what about, what about yesterday? What about last night? What about last week? The other little problem that's going to come in, so some of us it's going to be more of one, some of you it's going to be more of the other. Maybe this is going to be uh, where, where the enemy is going to push you. It's going to be this. But, okay, great, so there's no condemnation, but I still suffer. See, I still have to deal with sickness. I still have to deal with disease. I still have to deal with suffering. I still have to deal with persecution. So, I'm not really sure what Paul means by there's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus, but I'm still sinning and I'm still suffering. And so that kind of negates the blessing of what I'd like to think that that Scripture means. So let's unravel the enemy's pathetic attempt to thwart the power of the Word of God. Let's do that for a minute, okay? I want you to notice... In verse 2, Paul says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There is a perfect place for condemnation to come flying in. See, because after verse 1, you're thinking, man, this is great. And the very next thing, uh uh-oh. But it's only for certain people. 
It's only for people who can achieve this. It's only for people who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. But see, when I was sinning, I was walking according to the flesh, so that must not be me. But you see, because I'm having to face this suffering or this struggling or this sickness, it must be condemnation. It must be because I'm walking in the flesh and not in the Spirit. But let me just point you to verse 3. Second part. Verse 3 says this, But what the law could not do... That it was weak through the flesh, comma, here you go. God did. You got that? In other words, before you get knocked off balance by this second part of verse 1 or into verse 2, for the law of the, the Spirit and the life of Jesus Christ have made me free from the law of sin and death. Well, God did it. God did it by sending His own Son in verse 3. He did it. So when you begin to... to sort of retaliate in the flesh against this truth, the first thing I want you to see is that God did it. And God knows you still sin. And God knows you still suffer. And I think in a very amazing way, God demonstrates this truth in, in just perfect illustration by what we celebrated this morning in the Lord's Supper. I want to show you how that works. These verses will come up on the screen. In 1 Corinthians 11, and oftentimes I'll read this on uh, communion Sundays. We'll read this passage of Scripture. So this is familiar to all of you. But let's just think about this in light of what I've just said. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, the Bible says this, Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now remember this morning... When I was explaining briefly just before we took the Lord's Supper of what each of these two elements represent and that they represent Jesus and the body and blood of the Lord, verse 28, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. Now, if you're not already feeling a little condemned, here we go. Not discerning the Lord's body. So there's this warning by Paul to believers because the Lord's Supper is only and clearly anytime it's spoken of in Scripture for the redeemed. So that's the only people that, it's, that, that Paul is talking to. And he says, now, if you don't examine yourself, if you take of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, you, you eat or drink judgment on yourself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick among you, and many sleep or die. Now, that sounds a lot like condemnation. It sounds a lot. That's harsh. So, I mean, I bet you've, you've you know, heard me read that and thought, man. And so here we are, we're celebrating the Lord's work on the cross in the supper. And when we're, 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 we're looking in and examining ourselves and confessing our sin. And, and in other words, by, by, by partaking in the Lord's Supper on a regular basis, we're constantly being reminded of it's not just the cross that hangs on the wall, but it, it, it becomes even... I mean, it, it, gets, it gets off the wall and right there in your face. This is the blood. This is the, the body. And so we're reminded of the work of the cross. We're reminded of what that means to us. We're reminded of our identity in the cross. And then in all of this, Paul comes along and says, but you must examine yourself. And if you don't do that, you're going to bring this 
judgment on yourself. Now, the next verse says, For if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. In other words, God says now, if you judge yourself prior to taking the Lord's Supper, then you will not take it in an unworthy manner and you will not be judged. But here comes the good part. But when we are judged, in other words, when we don't do what we're supposed to do, when we take it in an unworthy manner, when we don't look within ourselves, when we don't confess our sin, when we are prideful, when we are puffed up, when we as believers don't do as we should, the Bible says we are chastened by the Lord. Why? That we may not be condemned with the world. In other words... Do you see what I'm saying here? Do you see how these Scriptures come together? Do you see that as you begin to read what Paul's saying, you begin to feel condemned because just the nature in us, the, the flesh in us, just cannot believe that there is now no longer condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so God is telling us at the table, at the Lord's Supper, that even when we approach it in an unworthy manner... We're chasing. Who does God chasten? Who? That's right. He chastens those whom He loves. The Bible says every son, every daughter is chastened. He chastens those He loves. Why? That they may not be condemned. The chastening prevents the condemnation. So what Paul is saying is that you will never, ever, ever be condemned in the world. Never. Now, back up to what we said earlier, to the scary parts of this. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick among you and many sleep. Maybe. Maybe there are believers who take of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Maybe. And maybe they suffer. Maybe. But they're not condemned. In other words, they're chastened. Why? Because God loves you. And so there's no condemnation. There may be chastening, but why is there chastening? There's chastening because what Paul has been telling us for two chapters and what Paul is about to just take us to the very peak of Mount Everest of systematic theology is that At the moment of justification, at the moment you were saved, at the moment the cross and what was accomplished there was imputed or planted into your life. At that moment, a process was set forth of sanctification, of growth in the Lord, right? And God's love for you and me is so great that He will not idly sit by and let you lay on the couch and waste it. So therefore, He will chasten you and He will chasten me if necessary to push us to godliness, to push us to Christ-likeness, to grow us in Him. All because He loves us. In other words... Don't you see 
that the absolute worst thing that could ever happen apart from God refusing salvation, the next worst thing that could ever happen would be to grant salvation and that alone. It would be horrible. Because what would happen? I mean, what, who, we would, so, so we would be, we would be saved but not transformed. We would somehow, we would be just like we used to be, but we'd be going to heaven. Can you see the catastrophe on earth there? In other words, there I am, the old Tony with the old nature and full bore. I mean, just condemned under the law, slave to sin, but yet going to heaven. What a catastrophe. And God says, no, no, I love you so much that I I refuse to let that happen. I refuse to let that happen. And so, remember, we talked about how sanctification looks a little bit different in everybody's life. But here's the thing. It's moving forward. And if it's not moving forward, there's going to be some chastening because God loves you so much that the cross represents He slayed His Son for you. And so I can guarantee you one thing. He is not going to idly sit back and let you just tread water forever. That's not going to happen. So so here's how this works out. So I'm driving home this afternoon. And, And I'm just sharing my heart here. I'm just thinking about, you know, the events of this morning. And I'm just a bit... You're so... You know, you're just overwhelmed. You're, you're just... You don't know what to do, what to think. How, you're, just, you're just trying to take it all in. And, and here, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, God... Thank You that my children get to grow up in a church... where people can be sanctified at such a rate that they feel the joy of their Maker upon their lives. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of a church where anything really is possible. You see, when, when, a, when, a, when a group of believers assembles together, and even if they don't fully understand or comprehend all of this, which certainly I believe this place does, but the, the point I'm trying to make here is that when, when we come together and we understand that, that in this process of sanctification, that if we will not let, if, if we will not fight God in sanctification, if we will pursue God in sanctification, if, if we will run to Him, if we will, will, will invest our energy and our blood, sweat, and tears in the kingdom of God and in His righteousness and in knowing about Him and in developing a prayer life and in studying and understanding His Word, that God honors that and He grows us and, and amazing things happen. And, and, the, and not because of any of you or any of me or anything else, but because of God. And, and what I'm saying here is that 
if you're redeemed tonight, I, I want you to understand that there is now, tonight, right now, there's no condemnation tonight. And here's what I want you to see. No matter where you are, some of you, like Brother John and Brother Frank and, and Dan, you've been Sunday school teachers here for a long time, and, and you study the Word on a very regular basis, and you teach God's Word all the time. And so it's and you have, have been sanctified at a rate, maybe it's been over lots of years, or maybe it's been over not so many years, but, but you've grown in Christ. You, you, you haven't been sitting back all the time waiting for God to kick you along the path of sanctification. Are you with me? And what that says, when you are part of a congregation where people who are otherwise not that special, not that brilliant, not just not that gifted, suddenly in the process of sanctification become Sunday school teachers and become Awana leaders and, and become caregivers and become missionaries and, 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 and just develop all these wonderful burdens and all of these gifts begin to come out of them. What you've got to see is that that's God's plan. And that because there's now no condemnation, if ever there was a Scripture that said, get up and go, no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, come on. That this is what's available for you right now. Right now. That there's nothing stopping you from this amazing, unbelievable journey of sanctification in Jesus Christ. There's nothing stopping you. Nothing. Augustine would, would use, would explain this through this illustration of, uh, he would talk about conversion being like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. And as the caterpillar was, was sort of in that, uh, stage, you know, wound up in the, in the cocoon or whatever, and all the little, you know, the metamorphosis was trance was going on. Augustine would say, now, now at that moment, that caterpillar, in other words, God in conversion or, you know, instinct in nature says to the caterpillar, okay, now you're going to fly. And the caterpillar can respond in one of two ways. The caterpillar can say, I can't fly. I'm a caterpillar. I don't have wings. I've never flown before. I don't know anything about flying. I haven't been trained in flying. Flying is unnatural to me. I don't know anything about this. I simply cannot fly. Or the caterpillar can say, make me fly. Make me fly. And in conversion, God's saying, fly. Go. And we're saying, I can't. I've never done that before. And he's saying, no. Because I've, I've made you to fly. Because if, if it just... If you just got saved, and then you just naturally by instinct 
began to grow in Christ's likeness. All of us at the same pace. In the exact same way, you know, that a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. Then where's the greatness of God in that? In other words, if that's just what happens, then who cares? How is God glorified in that? That robs God of His glory. But if God takes caterpillars like you and me and says, now go and fly, and then enables and equips us to begin the process of sanctification or puts us into a position to enter into flight school, and He begins to 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 shepherd us down this path and we begin to run towards the prize. We begin to, to long for the victory. We, we dream about soaring and we, we wonder what it would be like. Then when you take off, it's not, whoa, look at me. It's, look what God did. I can fly. But see, if we sit and we don't move, if we just decide, well, now I'm justified. Now I'm saved. So that's it. I'm just going to hang on to heaven. Look at what you miss. Look at what you miss. Because see, I'm convinced that the, 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 the harness, the shackles, if you're here tonight and you are redeemed, and you just can't move. You just can't seem to go forward. You, you seem like every time you take a step forward, you take two steps back. You just don't seem to make any headway. You can't seem to, to grow in this process. I mean, flying, it just seems like the, the furthest possibility for your life. I am convinced that the shackle that is holding you hostage is the shackle of condemnation. And Paul's saying there's now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not because of you, because He did it. And because He did it, He gave you all that you need to begin to go towards flight. And so then it's, it's, it's as if Paul's words are just jumping off the page saying to you and to me, come on, come on, let's go. And, and, and that's one of the, 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 the amazing things about a place like this. Is I, I, I wrote about it in my article in the newsletter. Some of you might have gotten that and read that. And because what's been on my heart is why I love Sunday so much. Because seeing the sanctification process before your eyes is such a blessing and it's such an encouragement. Because I don't always feel like flying. Sometimes I want to just sit. Sometimes I feel a little condemned. Sometimes I don't, I'm not really sure. And so days like today, as I'm driving home, I'm like, God, are you sure? Are you crazy? Have you thought this through? This may not be the right choice here. Maybe you can just get them all to vote no. See, I feel better now. You see, but here's the thing. But when I see people that I know and love, 
when I see them, when I see them go, well, I don't, I've never been on a mission trip before. I don't know anything about that. I don't have any money to go, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna try this. And then God begins to go. And then they, then I think, yes, see, that's it. That's flight school right there. Then when I see the people who, who begin to, to learn to play instruments to bring glory to God, I go, yeah, see, that's it right there. When I see people who, who study and learn for the only purpose to be a blessing to other people, people training themselves in righteousness so that they can help other people who are in trouble, I go, yes, that's it. See, that's flight school. I, that, that's what it's about. And I think, yes, God, yes. And so when I don't feel like moving and I don't feel like flying, then I see other people in the sanctification process, and then I say, yes, that's it, Lord. That's where I need to be. That's what I want. Then I'm back again. And we encourage each other. But they don't sit don't don't miss that. Don't. Sometimes I pray. I just say, God, I pray today that every person that goes to Sunday school, and I don't care if there's three hundred, four hundred, or a thousand, but every person that goes to Sunday school, if they would not just sit and listen, but if they would sit and go, look at this person who's teaching. And think about what they used to be. And don't, don't, don't put them or anyone else up on a pedestal, but, but look at the, the, the glory of sanctification. And instead of just taking for granted and just sitting there and letting someone else... Because here's the thing. Every one of them will tell you the same thing I'm telling you. That, that they're getting more out of teaching you than you are ever going to get out of their teaching. That's just a fact. You know why? Because they've been swimming in it all week. And if no one comes, I've, some of you have told me this, if no one comes to your class, you're going to just stand there and go. Man, I preach at my wife and kids all the time. I don't need an audience. Sometimes I talk to myself going down the road. Because here's the thing, it's just blowing out of me. It's just beaming over me. The point I'm trying to get you to see is that don't miss sanctification around you. Just look at little things. Notice that. You know, don't, don't just come blazing into the back door of church back here. Just stop for a second and go, is that Dale Clark? Does he really have a chair and a broom? Does he really sweep all the leaves and the debris off before he stands there in the hot or the cold or whatever the case may be? Before he invites you and me into the back door? Is that really what he's doing? Don't just walk by and go, I don't know, that guy's weird. Stop and go, you're flying, man. That's just cool. You see, because I didn't know him before Christ, but I'm sure he didn't go around and sit at doors with brooms. It, it's, it's all around us. But there's no condemnation. So take the shackles off. The teenagers sitting over there and listen, they're so condemned. They are so condemned. All they ever hear is what they cannot do and what they cannot be and what they cannot understand. What they cannot accomplish because they're too young or they're too stupid or they're too broke. And God says, no, 
What happens to the the 13-year-old that says, no, I want to fly, Lord. I want to fly. God slayed His Son and put His Spirit inside of you that you could soar. And it's open to you. I mean, the the path is there. It's uninhibited. And come on. And He loves you so much that even if you start to stray or even if you get mixed up, He's going to chase you right back on the path and bring you along. But you can fly. That's it. It just ought to overwhelm us as parents. That we have been entrusted with these... And and here here it comes. I'm about to dump some kind of condemnation up in here. I mean, if I start talking about parents, we all just shrivel up. You know why? Because we're, we're failures. I mean, there's not a senior person in this room. I don't believe there's one in this room... Who would go, buddy, I have raised me some fine kids. Every one of you would say, if I could do it over again. Because we grieve over it. Because we're horrible at it. And that's what I feel like. Every time I think about it, I just think of all the things I've done wrong. And the condemnation comes. And so guess what I do? I lock down. Instead of going, wait a minute. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, I have the opportunity to, 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 to guide my children on the path to flight. So maybe I've made a hundred mistakes in the past. Maybe your kids are already in their 50s or 60s. It's not too late. As long as there's an inch of path before them, let's go. That's what I'm saying. That when you take away the condemnation, everything changes. And you just begin to see, hey... Look at what's out there in Christ. I've put my faith in Him. And you know what? I didn't didn't understand any of this when I put my faith in Him. None of it. I couldn't even find the book of Romans when I put my faith in Him. But you know what? It didn't change salvation. Because it had nothing to do with what I brought to the table. And so when I read a passage of Scripture about a Roman centurion, my heart just jumps. Because I just think, well, there I am. I didn't know anything. But I knew my way wouldn't work. You knew your way wouldn't work. And instead of sitting there shackled to all the mistakes that we've made, all of the, the bumps in the road, all of the struggles we're facing... And even passages of Scripture that have a tendency to, to heap more false condemnation on us. Stop a minute and think, no, no. Even, even, if, we, even if we blow it, even if we do wrong, God's going to chasten us so that we're not condemned. You see, He's never going to let you or me be condemned in the world. Even if it ultimately comes to death. You see? Even if He has to... Take you, I mean, think about, think about the ultimate punishment. I mean, it's not like it hasn't been on the forefront of all of our minds for the past couple of weeks. What is the ultimate punishment for the believer? You go to heaven. That's the ultimate punishment. I know it has a tendency to put us in this deer in the headlights, but newsflash, that's the ultimate punishment. The worst thing that can happen to you tonight in Christ is heaven. I mean, seriously. It just doesn't get any better than that. So to live 
Donnie said, is Christ and to die is gain. So what are we condemned for? What are we shackled up in? The Bible says, no, there's now. Now. Now you begin to see. You see how the Beatitudes just start jumping out? You see, see when, you're, when you're hungry and you're thirsty for righteousness? Now you, you see why God presents Himself oftentimes as a fountain of living water? He who drinks of this water will thirst no more. In other words, you can drink and you can drink and you can drink and you can drink, right? You can drink all you want. Jeremiah says that this sin my people have committed, they've dug for themselves cisterns that won't hold water and they've forsaken the fountain of living water that flows endlessly, day in and day out, forever and ever and ever. You can drink all you want. It's, it's unlimited. You see, when the butterfly takes flight... There's, a, there's not a no-fly zone. You can't just fly around. Well, you see, if the caterpillar lived in my backyard, once it gets wings, all it can do is fly in circles inside my fence. Whoop-dee-doo. No. Where can it fly? Anywhere there's air. Right? Where can you go in Christ? Anywhere God will lead you. As far as that is. That it's... The message is it's never too late. Jump on and go. It's for you. It's for me. It's there. Take it. Come and, and feast at His table and eat until you're full. And when you're hungry again, come right back and there'll be more to eat. Every time. See, again, I, all these things just... just because I, I know what it feels like to be you. Trust me, I do. I mean, I know what it feels like to be out there and have some maniac scream at you. I know that. I know that. I sat right there and got screamed at for years. And it was so good for me. But here's what I'm saying. That, that when I say, just pick up and feast. And every day you open this up and there's a feast prepared for you to feast on. You receive condemnation. You receive... The first thing you think about is, is how you fail at studying the Bible, isn't it? Why? Because your enemy is wily. That's why. He knows where to get you. But when he says to you, oh yeah, how many times have you made the I'm going to read my Bible more declaration and failed? You say... Shut up, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So tomorrow, I'm going to get up and read my Bible. And I'm going to feast at the table. Because it's as much as you want to eat. Really, I'll leave you alone, but you're going to have to give me some indication you're with me here. I do. I love you. I want you to go. I want you to, I want you to grow. I want you to live. I want you to live in this newness of life and, and walk in the Spirit and not be condemned and tell that voice to shut up because it lies. 
And don't miss the beautiful picture of sanctification that happens all around this place every time we're together. So let's look at a couple more things and then we'll be done and we'll pick this up in a few weeks and uh, finish it up. I just want you to take note of a couple of things. Look at verse 6 where Paul says, To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. I want you to understand or, or just take note of the, the these two words, is death and is life and peace. In other words, to be carnally minded, it does not say will lead to death. You notice that? It says it is death. In other words, before Christ, it was death. You were dead. There wasn't any life. It was over. You had no hope. There was no chance. But now, redeemed people, you see, it is. They're spiritually minded. This doesn't mean the person who gets enough strength or does uh, or is good enough or disciplined enough or moral enough to walk in the Spirit. It means a person who's saved and has the indwelt Spirit in them. They are. They are. It is what they are. By nature, as fire is hot, you are spiritually minded. You don't have to yield to the Spirit, but you are spiritually minded. It is there. It's irrevocable. And so life and peace can be yours. Look at verse 9. Paul says this, But you, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. Just to make the point of verse 6 crystal clear, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, which means if you're saved, it's a done deal. There's no second blessing. There's no extra thing. It's not like you got to get saved and join the church or have a job or start tithing or anything else. It's just Christ and Christ alone. And that's it. you got the Spirit in you, period. Then, now, if anyone does not have the Spirit, he is not his. But just reverse that for a moment and see what that tells you. If anyone who does not have the Spirit is not His, then anyone who does have the Spirit is His. In other words, you belong to Him. You are His. You've been bought with a price. You now no longer exist as so-and-so in the world, but now you are so-and-so son or daughter of Christ or of God, co-heirs with Christ. You are grafted into the family. Paul goes on, if you skip way down and look at verse 14, he says, but as many of you as are led by the Spirit. Okay, again, the tendency in our flesh is to think, well, am I led by the Spirit? Well, Paul's saying, are you saved? If you're saved, then you're a son of God. That's what he's saying. If you're saved, you're a son of God. Verse 15, For you did not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear, so unshackle the condemnation and begin to get in flight school and start flying because you're not under bondage, but you received a spirit of adoption where you cry out, Abba, Father. That's who you are. You're a son. You're a daughter. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. Join heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified with Him. It's not some conditional statement. It's not if you do good enough. It's not if you live up to it. It's not if you earn it. You, if you're saved, you'll be sanctified and you will be glorified. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. It's done. So the only question is, where are you? 
Where are you tonight? Where are you with regards to where you were a year ago? Are you flying? Are you soaring? I hope so. If you're not, why? Because the only thing standing between you and soaring is a lie. It's a lie. You're not condemned. You're never going to be condemned. Ever. So just take those shackles off and begin to live as if the worst thing that could ever happen to you is to open your eyes in all the glory and splendor of heaven before your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, if you're a young person tonight, I just hope that that your heart just beams with hope and dreams of what God can do with your life. And I know that that there are some teenagers here tonight. And all you hear is how sorry you are. And how your grades don't measure up. And how you, your, your attitude doesn't measure up. And how you, you, your performance on the field doesn't measure up. And how you're not as tall as you ought to be. Or as good looking as you ought to be. Or you don't have the right shape like you ought to be. Or you don't have the right clothes like you ought to be. And I say to all that, you know what? Let me tell you what you have. In Christ, you have the potential to soar to places you cannot imagine. If you will grab it, just grab it. And don't sit around and wait for instinct to just transform you into something. Or don't sit around and say, I can't fly because I've never flown before. But say, God, I want to fly. I want to fly as far and as high as you will take me. And you just begin to wake up every day putting all of your faith and all of your hope in Christ and not your abilities and not what people tell you around you and not what you don't think you can do, but just in Christ and what He says in His Word. And someday, Soon, as many of you do so often, all of these years, the, the seemed like every time I felt like I couldn't take another step forward, God would put a young person in my path who wanted to fly. And I would say, God, I want to fly. They want to fly. Maybe you're maybe you feel like you're you're closing in on the, the tail end here of this this whole life on earth thing. You know, maybe you feel like, well, your better days are behind you now. You know, you've 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 sown your tears and you've reaped your harvest and 
That season's past now. Can I just encourage you? It's not. If you're breathing, sometimes I think to myself, what, what I would miss if it wasn't for the most senior people and how you encourage me and how you chase after God and how you are faithful in things that, that oftentimes we overlook. But when it's, it's blustery and cold outside, when it's dark and you can't see well, when, when you don't feel good, but you come anyway. And for a lot of us in here, it's big deal. What else would we do? We ought to be. But for you, it, it's, it encourages me because it shows me you want to fly. And until the day you gasp your last breath, you want to be in the presence of God's people and you want to be encouraging people and you haven't quit and you don't give up. Thank God, don't stop. Keep pushing. For all of us. What good is it if we just sit still? There's no condemnation. Because the cross says that, man, we were in big trouble. But God loved us so much that He washed it all away and gave us a clean slate. Now let's Get up and go in what we have. Let's stand, bow our heads, and pray together. Father, thank You, Lord Jesus, for being the very embodiment of this Word. God, thank You, Lord, that You, you live out everything we read about, Lord. That when we read passages of Scripture that just tend to stress and strain our mind to comprehend the greatness and the majesty of what the Word says, that all we need to do is stop and think that You lived this out on earth, Lord. That You encountered people in a very real way. That God, You, you met a centurion one day in a little bitty town called Capernaum. And you lifted all the condemnation off of his life that he may soar in you. And though he was surrounded by religious people who utterly and completely missed it, you chose the least likely person confounded the wisdom of the world and set him aflight. Thank you, Lord, for that. Father, thank you for this room, God, and what it represents, Lord. The, the years of sanctification in this room, God, thank you. But God, I, I thank you for the sanctification that's yet to come, Lord. I thank you for the growth that's yet to be seen, for the heights that are yet to be experienced, Lord. I thank you for that, God. Lord, I pray we would be hungry and thirsty for You. Father, thank You for loving us. Lord, thank You for setting us free. 
And so, Lord, I just pray right now for my brothers and sisters, God, that as we just take a moment, reflect and respond to you, that you would meet every need in the room. Maybe there's some here who need to receive you as Savior tonight, Lord. I pray that they would do that tonight, God. Maybe some want to come and pray and thank you for your amazing gift. Lord, whatever the need is, you already know it and you're capable of meeting everyone. And we ask you to do that tonight, that we may not hinder or quench the work of your Spirit.